Good morning. Please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 19 and stand with me. We're going to read God's Word first. And today we are talking about the power of the Word of God. It is no secret that God's Word is powerful. It might seem like low-hanging fruit to you, but we need to know and live our lives in light of the truth that God's Word is more powerful than anything. And today you're going to see that God's powerful truth defeats Satan's lies. So before we do anything else, let's read it. Acts 19, I'll read verses 8 through 20. This is the word of God. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who are now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And Lord, thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that you would have your way in our hearts today. Lord, do whatever you want. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Power of the Word of God, God's truth defeating Satan's lies. The fact that God uses His Word to defeat Satan and frees people to worship Jesus. This is what we're talking about today. And we're talking about this because Jesus came to defeat Satan. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 tell us that since the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. If you're a Christian today, that was you before you came to know Christ, that you were subject to lifelong slavery. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15 says that he, God, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in Christ. 
If you're a believer, you're glad that that happened. You, you praise the glories of God's grace in Christ that he did that. But if you're in, in, the, in the other camp where you're saying, you know, I don't believe in Jesus, I, I don't need him and I don't want him, then you would be classified under people who are in active rebellion against God. And then the Bible tells us you belong to Satan and he is influencing your mind and your will. Jesus himself said in John chapter 8, verse 44, the devil was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks of his own initiative, his own character, for he is a liar and he is the father of lies. Paul tells believers in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we are not waging war against the people, the, the demons, the strongholds in our own strength. You don't wake up in the morning and say, you know, I'm going to fight Satan. I'm going to fight all those who are against God in my own strength. If you're a believer, you're saying, no, the weapons of our warfare are not according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are divinely powerful for the destruction of strongholds. And you're talking about the word of God. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God as seen in his word and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Obey what Jesus said in the word. It's no secret that the word of God is powerful and it is alive. And I know that, again, low-hanging fruit here, but I think we need to state it and, and, and say it because I think that it's very easy as people that are toting Bibles to somehow undervalue them. The word of God is from God. The word of God is his word. And as we unleash it, it displays powerful effects. John 17, 17, Jesus said, praying to the Father, he says, sanctify them, believers, in the truth. Your word is truth. 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul says, the word of God does its work in all you who believe. 2 Timothy 3.16 says it's, the word of God is inspired by God, literally God breathed. By the way, I read a portion of the word of God as I read the scriptures. Uh, Acts 19 verses 8 through 20, and when, when the word speaks, God speaks. It's very easy for Christians to say, well, you know, it's, it's something God gave us, but it's not really that important, and, and I would just say, oh, yes, it is. There are Christians right now having debates of whether the Bible is really inerrant and if, if it really is inspired by God. And if, if you take the, the viewpoint that it isn't inerrant and it isn't inspired by God and it isn't infallible, then you're landing with heretics who are basically denying the authority of Scripture and denying what the Bible clearly says about itself. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable it is good for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. That you, if you are a believer, would be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You're equipped for all the good works that God has in store for you by the word of God. If you're a believer today, you're saying, hey, I was saved by grace through faith in Christ. Ephesians 2 told me that I was dead in my sins, but God made me alive together in Christ. And by grace I am saved. And then you get to verse 10 that says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And you are equipped for those good works by the powerful word of God. In Matthew chapter 22, uh, the Sadducees, one of 
the groups that were against Jesus are testing him with questions and he is clearly correcting their doctrinal errors and he quotes the Old Testament to them and he says, you are wrong. You know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. And then he says this, he quotes the Old Testament to them. Have you never read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. There was a a book written a long time ago by an author and he put this title on it. Your God is too small. He was writing to Christians and he says, you have such a puny view of God. He is so much stronger and, and bigger than you can imagine. And I think today the book would, read, would, would have this title. The Bible in your mind is too small. Because it is the word of God. It is from God. It is not going to change. In fact, you know, because we have them so readily available to us, copies of the scriptures, it's very easy for Christians to to undervalue the Bible. And people will say, well, you're worshiping the Bible. Oh no, we're worshiping the God of the Bible who has revealed himself in Jesus Christ through the scriptures. Talk about general revelation where you say, well, you can know that God exists by looking at creation. Romans 1 tells us that very clearly. um, Psalm 19 tells us that very clearly. But special revelation, specific revelation, is where you learn about Jesus Christ. Uh, Knowing that God created the world will never get you saved by Jesus Christ. You will only know it through the very word of God that God has given us, provided for us, preserved for us, the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments. And so it is very important for us to grasp that the Bible is powerful and it is God's word. And when the word speaks, God speaks. And we're landing really in the middle of a chapter in the book of Acts. And we're seeing something. We're trekking through this chapter, right? We're, we're in the middle of the chapter. And you know what we happen upon? You know what we, we come upon? A very clear depiction of the power of the word of God. A, a, very, a, a very strong statement that shows us four unique effects of the word of God. That's what I want you to see today. So if you're taking notes, we're going to dive right in. We're going to start in verse 8. I want you to see the first thing. The unique effects of the word of God, and the first thing I want you to see is that God's word divides. It divides. It divides people. It divides people into two distinct categories. Look at verse 8. Paul enters the synagogue in Ephesus. This was his practice. He'd go in, and he would teach the Old Testament, and he would tell the people all about Jesus. This was his practice. was his practice. And he does this for three months. It's the longest stretch in any synagogue except maybe Corinth. And it says that he speaks boldly, that it's in the imperfect tense. It literally means he did it continually. So for three months, he continually went to the synagogue every time it was opened, and he reasoned with them. We've seen this several times in the book of Acts. He reasoned. It's the Greek word dialegomai. It's where we get our English word dialogue. He's not just telling them things. He is uh, having a dialogue with them, questions and answers, and reasoning with them and showing them that Jesus is the Messiah. And he's persuading them. It means that he is convincing them by argument about the kingdom of God. He is preaching and teaching the things concerning Jesus. 
And he's telling them about salvation. He's telling them about righteousness. He's telling them, here's how you can have salvation. Here's how you can serve God. This is what he's doing. He's persistently preaching the gospel. He's persistently preaching the word of God. He's doing it every day for three months. And then you come to verse 9 and you see the result. Some who are listening to this on a daily basis become stubborn. Now, we all know what it means to be stubborn. We dig our heels in. We, we say, I'm not going to move. I'm not going to budge, right? And they become stubborn and continue in unbelief. They're, they're speaking evil of the way, which is an old term, an a, a early title for Christianity. Jesus is the way, and they're now speaking evil of Jesus, blaspheming him, hating him, rejecting him, and they're hardened in their hearts. That's what it means to be stubborn. They're hardened. And by the way, every time this phrase is used in the Bible, it, it, it signifies someone who is defiant against God. You don't want to be in that category. That, but the Bible divides people into two categories. Those that are dependent on God and those who are defiant against him. So some of those that are listening are becoming stubborn. Uh, their hearts are getting calloused. Their hearts are getting hardened. Their hearts are being cauterized. They're insensitive to the truth. And they're rejecting it. Their heart's becoming hard. And here's what happens. When you have a hard heart against the powerful word of God, what happens is the life-giving message of the gospel, which is sweet to the ears of believers, where a true believer hears the gospel and rejoices because this is now the reality of their life forever, that Jesus took their place on the cross, that he shed his blood, that he was buried, that he rose from the dead on the third day, and that all who come to him by faith are, are his forever, and that he's coming back to take them to be with him where he is, in a place that he has provided and prepared but that life-giving message of salvation, that if you're a believer, your heart just rejoices every time you hear it, to those with hardened hearts, that life-giving message of salvation becomes an aroma of death leading to death. That you, that there's far away from that life-giving message as they can be because they think that that contains the stench of death. Now, recently in my neighborhood, down near a park that, where we live in Orange, something had died in the, the brush. And when I came back from our trip this summer, a few of my neighbors that we walk dogs together with, they said, now when you get to this part, on the road, um, you're going to have to plug your nose because something died back there about a month ago, and it's, it's pretty strong. And you had to go probably 30 paces of like, woof, what is that? That's bad. And the stench of death is, is something you don't want to smell. But, but Paul tells the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 2.16, that those who reject the gospel, when they hear the life-giving message of the gospel, the joyful message of the gospel, the thing that rejoices your hearts about Jesus, it's to them a stench of death, and it leads to death. It's you before you were a believer. It's you before you acknowledged Christ's lordship. 
Well, the big story here is that the word divides. It divides. The word of God divides the world into two distinct groups. And, and it has, there's many, many contrasts in the Bible. You've got sheep and goats. You've got light and darkness. You've got good and evil. You've got righteous and unrighteous, God-fearing and godless, wise and foolish, alive and dead, believers and unbelievers, saved and unsaved. And you're either in one camp or the other. What did Jesus say? Luke chapter 12, verse 51. Do you think I have come to give peace on earth? The Prince of Peace? Bringing peace? says, I didn't come to bring peace, I came to bring division. And what he was saying is that the word of God is going to divide the, the whole universe of filled with people into two distinct groups that couldn't be farther apart from one another. The word divides. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 4. I want you to see something here. I want you to see two things I want to point out to you. A lot of people will say, I want to hear the voice of God. And they'll claim that God has told them something, but they haven't heard it from the Bible. And it doesn't agree with the Bible. I want you to see Hebrews 4, 7. It says this, and it's quoting, it's quoting the Psalms. David saying, today if you would hear his voice, if you would hear God's voice, do not harden your hearts. If you hear God's voice, don't harden your heart. Verse eight, if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken about another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Whoever has entered God's rest has rested from his works as God did from him. You're resting in the finished work of Christ. It says in verse 11, therefore let us strive to enter that rest so that no one fall by the same sort of disobedience. And then verse 12, very well-known verse about the word of God in the same context. Today if you hear his voice, and then in verse 12, for the word of God, that's parallel to the voice of God. When the scriptures speak, God speaks. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now it's depicting the word of God as a sharp, double-edged sword. And you have a picture, really, of a butcher who is going to basically, like, what, cut up a cow into, you know, pieces that you can take and eat, right? And so there's that idea of joints cutting through joints and marrow. But here, piercing to the division of soul and spirit does something, and only the Word of God can do it. It reveals to us who we are. It reveals to you if you're saved or not, if you're alive spiritually or not, or if you're dead spiritually. And only the word of God can judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart because it's, it's God's word. God is behind it. God is using his word. God is doing something. God is doing the dividing. And it exposes the truth about your mind and your motives. If you're a Christian today, you're rejoicing in that. You're rejoicing in that because God gave you salvation. You didn't deserve it. You didn't warrant it in any way. There was no merit on your part that you would even dream that God would ever consider bringing you into his family, but by his grace, extending mercy towards you because of the shed blood of Christ, because of your faith in Christ, you now can say, I am saved 
solely by the grace of God. But the word divides, and if you're in that place, praise God that you are there. If you're not in that place, run to Jesus. If, if, even now, even right this moment as you're hearing this, you might say, wait a minute, I think I've been on that other camp hard-hearted towards God, not wanting his word, rejecting Jesus, and yes, every time I heard the gospel, it was like the stench of death to me. But now, as I'm even hearing this right now, I'm, I'm saying, wait a minute, wait, I wanna be on the other side of this. I, I want Jesus. I, I want that life-giving message of the gospel because now God has changed your heart, even right this very moment, to want to be saved by Jesus. The word divides. Now I want to mention one more thing before we move to the next point. Let's say you're very involved in getting the gospel out and you're, you're reaching out to people with the gospel and, and you realize something, just like Paul did, that he's giving the message out, but not everyone's believing it. Paul could have said, oh, I guess I didn't do a very good job. I guess I wasn't very good at explaining the message because all these people are hard-hearted against it. And here's what you have to remember. This is your comfort that your outreach, the, the success of your outreach is rightly gauged by the accuracy of the message you're presenting, not the number of positive responses to it. Because you can give a false gospel, and people are giving false gospels all over the place. They can get a lot of people to say, I want that, because it's man-centered. So just remember this, that the, the success of your evangelistic efforts is rightly gauged by the accuracy of the message you give, not how many positive response you receive. That's up to God. He will save who he wills. So that's the first thing we see here is that the word of God divides very clearly, very clearly. And then verse nine, still stay in verse nine with me and I want you to see a second point, an effect of the word of God. It unites, it unites believers. The word of God unites believers. Verse 9, Paul leaves those that are rejecting the message, takes the believers with him, takes the disciples with him, and reasons daily. There's that word again. He's having a dialogue about Jesus from the Old Testament scriptures, and he does so in a place called the Hall of Tyrannus. Tyrannus was either the owner of the place or the philosopher who taught there, his name means our tyrant. And I know that you go, ooh, that's bad. Well, in those days, the tyrant would actually take care of the poor and things like that, and so it wasn't all bad. Most likely, it was a nickname given to him by his students. And Paul is using the hall. And, and in one of the Bible texts that's not in the one we have, it tells us the time he was using it. From the fifth hour of the day to the tenth hour of the day. Literally from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. And you might say, wow, he got the sweet spot of the day. No, that was the worst part of the day. See, Tyrannus would have used the hall early in the morning when it was cool and at, in the evening when it was cool. 11 to 4 was like the worst time you could have that, but that's when it was available. That's when it was unoccupied. And he's teaching the word. And, and how long did he do it? Look at verse 10. Two years. Two years during the worst time of the day in Ephesus. By the way, it was said of Ephesus that there are more people asleep at 1 p.m. than at 1 a.m. There's a lot of shenanigans going on in Ephesus at nighttime. But what this tells me and you is that people were hungry for the word of God. Do you know what most people were doing during that time? 
having a siesta, having a nap. We like our naps every once in a while. Some of you are like, I want one of those, right? Let's build this into the day or the work day. Well, in, in Ephesus, people were sleeping at 1 p.m., but not Paul and not the disciples that were with him and not anyone else who God was drawing to himself. They were hearing the word of God five hours a day for two whole years. And we read in verse 10 that as a result, everyone in Asia heard the word of God. And it's significant that we keep seeing this phrase, Jews and Greeks. What it's telling us, what it's telling us is that everyone heard the word of God. Jews who would have known the Old Testament scriptures, Gentiles who would have been ignorant of the Old Testament scriptures, they're all hearing about Jesus from Paul. But it says that they all, it was everyone in Asia. How did that happen? Because Paul probably didn't leave Ephesus for that whole two years. Well, it takes us back to last week when we were talking about having God providing willing co-workers. Like, you know, Priscilla and Aquila and Timothy and others. It takes us to 2 Timothy 2.2 where Paul says to Timothy, the things you've heard and learned from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So you have Priscilla and Aquila out there teaching and Timothy and Epaphras and Philemon who were from Colossae. Others from probably Pergamum and Sardis and Philadelphia, maybe, maybe the whole, uh, all the seven churches in Revelation. Because in this two-year period of time, the church in Colossae was founded, in Hierapolis it was founded, possibly some of the seven churches in Revelation. Because all these people were hearing the word of God and then going back to where they lived and making disciples and planting churches. And others, Aristarchus from Macedonia, Gaius from Corinth and others are doing this. But here's what we see here. The word rightly handled doesn't divide Christ's witnesses. Now a lot of Christians are like, oh, I have problems with this group and that group because they're just not right on like I think I am about this, this, and that. The only time you want to divide with Christians if, if they are giving up the, the truths that we would die together for. The authority of Scripture, the virgin birth, the substitutionary atonement, the bodily resurrection, the return of Christ, all these things that we would die for together, but then things that are not essential for salvation? What do Christians do left and right? Well, I don't want to be with that group because, you know, they got this, these, these peripheral things that they're holding on to. If Orthodox Christian faith is at stake, then you need to divide from them. But if not, you need to be together with fellow believers. The Word of God, so powerful in the life of believers, unites us. Our sin divides us. What did Paul say to the Corinthian believers? He tells them, chapter 1, verse 10, I am appealing to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, the authority of Christ, that all of you agree. It's hard to get people to agree, just even in your family, right? It's like, wait a minute, we don't even know how, we can't even decide where we're going to lunch. How can we all agree? The idea is that God takes people from all different backgrounds with all different personalities and in the church of Jesus Christ puts people together, saves them by the gospel, and puts people together that would never get along outside of Christ. And he's saying you need to all agree. That doesn't mean you all have to have the same exact idea about everything in life. You need to agree about the basics. And you need to not be divided. He says you need to be united in the same mind and of the same judgment, because the word rightly handled unites 
Christians. Now, it divides the whole universe into whether you're, you're in Christ or not. But amongst the body of Christ, it unites us. And God is able to do that by his powerful word. This is what we see here. Paul is, is with these believers, and they are, they're, they are affecting the entire area of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey and elsewhere, and, and it's happening because of the power of God. Let's move on to a third thing, because, okay, we see that the word divides, we see that the word unites Christians, but now we come to kind of the largest real estate here in this passage, verses 11 through 17, some really wild things going on. Here's what we see here. The word of God exposes. It exposes counterfeits, it exposes evil. Now we see God doing something really good. In fact, your, your compass on this, this little passage here is verse 11. You've got to remember this, that God was doing the, the extraordinary things that were happening. Okay? Don't lose sight of that when you get into like handkerchiefs and aprons being carried around with some sort of power. Okay? Uh, don't get thrown off. You need to remember this. Verse 11, God was doing it. Just remember this, okay? And then, then we're going to see what's happening here. God was doing what is called extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. That word extraordinary is translated unusual. So even for that day, it was unusual for this to be happening. This is not normative for Christians. We're not going to do prayer hankies, okay? Heretics do hair prank, uh, uh, prayer hankies. Um, her heretics, by the way, come from inside the church. Start teaching wrong doctrine, Okay. But here's what happens. God is confirming Paul as his messenger. There was no completed New Testament at this time. And to test the truthfulness of his message, he, he did some unusual things. Not normative for Christians today, not even normative for that day. It was very unusual for this to happen in that day. Verse 12, here it is. Handkerchiefs and aprons Paul used Presumably headbands he might have worn as he tent, tent made and coverings like uh, body coverings that he wore while he was making tents. The people wrongly thought that there was mystical power being transmitted by touching these things, by coming in contact with these things. Now think about the woman who in Matthew 9.21 said, if I just touch the fringe of Jesus' cloak, I'll be healed. What happened to her? Remember? She got healed. Did the cloak heal her? No. The, God healed her, right? The cloak had no power. Think about Acts chapter 5, verse 15. People said, hey, if only Peter's shadow falls on us, we'll be healed. What happens? People are getting healed. Shadow, no healing power. Shadow gives you shade. That was cool, but it won't, it won't heal you. So here's what you need to know about this. This was not Paul's idea. Hey, everyone, I'm going to be, you know, sending my clothes around, my sweaty clothes, by the way, so that they can, it can touch you and you can be healed and, and get, you know, free from demons. It's not what was going on. Here's what was going on. God chose to display his healing power in spite of the people's deficient understanding of spiritual power. So he chose to do a very unusual thing even in that time. And so what happens? Diseases and evil spirits are leaving the people. 
By the way, leaving them, that that's imperfect tense, that God was doing these things, means it was happening regularly through Paul. But the power was not Paul's. The power was God's. He was doing it. And it tells us something that we learn in the, in the Gospels. Demonic power is real. And the power of God is superior to the power of the enemy. And the enemy can be told to depart. Look at verse 13. So now some, some frauds are going to try to co-opt the name of Christ. Some itinerant Jewish exorcists. And they say, well, we're going to start using Jesus' name. Now, they had all sorts of incantations and recipes, and they would throw Jesus' name in the mix. And they said, I command you by the Jesus Paul proclaims. They have no connection to Jesus. They don't believe in Jesus. They're not saved. Think Simon Magus in Acts 8. Think Bar-Jesus in Acts 13. And they're frauds. And they're giving these incantations and they figure we're going to throw Jesus' name in the mix too. You know, he's doing some, some cool things. That'll help us. Well, verse 14 tells us there's some Jewish uh, guys, seven of them, who are sons of this high priest named Siva, and they're doing just that. By the way, there's no record of, of a Jewish high priest named Siva. Uh, it assumes that he probably gave himself the title to impress people. Hey, I'm the high priest. But here's what God's about to do. By his power, he's going to expose the evil, the deceptive evil of their ways, and he's going to dramatically show the futility of magic practices and superstitions. That's what he's going to do. Verse 15, here's what you see happening. The demon is taunting these seven sons of Siva and says through the man, I know Jesus. Think about it in the, in the Gospels when a demon comes across Jesus, they, they fear because they know who he is. James said the demons believe and shudder. He says, I know, about, I know Jesus, I know about Paul, but who are you? They have no authority over him, um, unlike Jesus. He has authority over them. And the demon rejects their attempt to cast him out. Like, you're not, you're not going to do anything to me because you don't have any authority over me. They didn't know Jesus. Confirms that the power to cast out demons belongs to Jesus. Demons are giving testimony to it. Empty formulas don't work. Paul said on many occasions, it's not of my own personal power that I'm doing what I'm doing, but the presence of the Lord Jesus working through me, that's, that's it. And it, for these men, there's no relationship with Jesus, no connection to Jesus beyond knowing his name. Think about the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. They're not treating Jesus' name as holy because they, they were misusing his name. They wrongly try to use Jesus' name and like a grenade, it explodes in their faces. Here's what happens. Verse 16, the man with the evil spirit leaps on them, physically assaults them, jumps on them like a panther would jump on you and overpowers them. They flee from the house, what, naked and wounded. It's a very painful lesson they're learning. And of course, verse 17 says, the news just spreads like wildfire. Jews and Gentiles alike living in Ephesus hear about it, and what happens? The fear of God falls upon them. The name of Jesus is magnified. By the way, that phrase, the name of Jesus, it signifies everything that is true about Jesus. They realize they need to acknowledge Christ's authority. Do you remember the day that you, you realized you needed to acknowledge the authority of Christ? You bowed before him and 
believed in the Lord Jesus and were saved. Do you remember that day? Do you remember that time in your life when that was going on? This is what they were going through. They, the fear of God fell upon them, and then they're magnifying the name of Jesus. See, the word of God is so powerful, it exposes sin and evil. It exposes counterfeits like these seven sons of Siva. The, the, the word of God dominates demonic spells. Hebrews 12, 13 says, everything is open and laid bare to the eyes of God. So they, they realize something. Everyone's realizing something. That what they truly deserve is the wrath of God against their sin. And, and if, they're gonna, if they're gonna be saved, their only hope of escape is if they come to faith in Christ. Because God's truth defeats Satan's lies. See, the word is your weapon against the lies of the devil. Think about what Jesus did when he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Luke chapter four, verses one through 12. It says, this is key, Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And the devil comes to him, hey, if you're the son of God, make these stones into bread and all that. And Jesus says, it is written, He's using the written word of God, the living word of God is using the written word of God, which is what we need to do. And he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that comes out of the mouth of God. He points him back to the written scriptures. The devil shows him all the kingdoms of the world in one moment of time and says, I'm going to give you all of this, all the authority, all the glory, if you would just bow down and worship me. And Jesus said, if, if you only knew, <laughs> it is written, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, him only you shall serve. Satan takes him to the pinnacle of the temple and says, hey, throw yourself down. And now he's figuring, I'll use the word of God. He says, hey, remember, God said, he'll command his angels concerning you to guard you if you Strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus says, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He uses the, the written word of God against Satan. And I'm telling you, the word of God is powerful to expose evil. You gotta cling to that word. You gotta cling to that word. Don't think it is not essential. Don't think that it's just part of a smorgasbord of of Christian literature. This is the word of God. It's what we need every day of our life. Okay, let's go to the last part. Last point I want to make. Last point that this passage is showing us about the word of God, what it does. And, and, and if you're a Christian, you rejoice in it because it's, it's a good thing. The word of God purifies, frees you. It, it, it has purifying power. It, it, in, it induces repentance. It purifies from sin. Verses 18 through 20, here are the Christians in Ephesus who are fearful after this episode involving these seven men. And so verse 18 tells us that many of them come and they confess and divulge their practices. They openly confess their evil deeds. Christians are doing this. Many had not made a clean break from their past. You may have not made a clean break from your past. They're still involved in a cult despite their faith in Christ. Ephesians 5 tells us, take no part. Paul is writing to the Ephesians, by the way, probably five to seven years later. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Instead, expose them. When anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. So you need to walk in the light of Christ and please God and live apart from the darkness, which doesn't mean you go out of the world. 
You don't withdraw from the world. You walk as children of light. It means you don't engage in the sins of the unbelieving culture. You don't engage in your pre-Christian sins. You love sinners all around you. You make many, many friends with those who are enslaved to sin, but you don't act sinfully. And when you do, you confess your sins. Receive God's forgiveness. Verse 19 tells us that many who practice magic brought their books and burned them in front of everyone. They were practicing sorcery. If he, um, Ephesus was the center for magical practices in the Mediterranean world. Um, Shakespeare wrote of Ephesus in his Comedy of Errors. He said, it's a town full of nimble jugglers that deceive the eye. Dark-working sorcerers that warp the mind. Soul-killing witches that devour the body. Disguised cheaters. In those days, magic and sorcery were thought to be the way that you controlled various sorts of spirits. And if only you knew the right names and performed the right rituals and said the right words, you could be freed from danger and other things. And it's sad but true that many Christians in Paul's day wore amulets, objects that they thought were going to keep them from danger. They would recite magical invocations. They would own papyrus rolls of magical formulas and recipes. That, that were their books. Those were the books. Scrolls full of secret magical spells. And what did they do when they were convicted by God's Spirit? They were convicted by the Word of God. They had a bonfire of very expensive books. 50,000 silver coins worth. Literally, that was 50,000 days wages. For one person, that'd be 136 years of work. It's not even, you know, not even possible. But here's what happened. God brought conviction on the hearts of many of these brand new Christians, and they go home, and they get their papyrus scrolls of magic formulas, and they burn them in front of everyone. This is the only place in the Bible where you see burning of religious books. This is not about banning books or burning books that you don't like. It's not about weeding out the public library or buying up all the copies of books you don't like. The Ephesian Christians burned their own books because they were renouncing their past. They were renouncing their sins. These books came from their own homes. So in contrast to the word of God, these books had no helpful power. They were just harmful. And burning the books displayed their repentance. Repentance. And the, the sheer magnitude of how much they all cost showed how widespread magic was in Ephesus. But they were displaying godly sorrow. They were displaying repentance. These recently converted Christians were confessing their sins. They had personal sorrow over their sins. This is what God brings about in tender hearts. Did you notice they did this together? Did you notice a humbling thing, a necessary thing? The power of the gospel overcame the magic power of the books. And the gospel, like a hurricane, comes upon the, the city of Ephesus and nothing could stop it. It was like dynamite. It points out the problem of syncretism, by the way, believers adding things into Christianity. You add anything into the message of the gospel and the uniqueness and the sufficiency of Christ is compromised. You add in practices and not repent of them and you end up with a false syncretistic 
untrue gospel. Besides the obvious evil, there are people who advocate positive thinking without gospel transformation. There are people who advocate trying harder and working harder and being a better person over the gospel of the grace of God in Christ. There are people who advocate living a good life, being a good person, who proclaim the name of Christ and they try to do it under their own power and that's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The word purifies you from lies Psalm 119 verse 9 says, how can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to the word of God. Psalm 119 verse 11, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. James 121, put aside all filthiness, receive with humility the implanted word which is able to save your souls. You can have gospel victory through the purifying power of the word of God. Verse 20, here's the, the outcome. The word of God continued to spread widely and grow in power. It continued to increase and prevail mightily. In verse 16, the word overpowered that was about the demon-possessed man overpowering these seven men is the same word in verse 20 for prevailing because the word of God dominated the city of Ephesus. You want to allow the word of God to dominate your life. You have a Bible Use it, read it, study it, share it. It will ooze out of you. What, what, what goes in must come out. A lot of people who live in sin stay away from the word. Deep sin in your life will keep you from the word. John Bunyan said this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. Proverbs 13, 13 says, he who neglects the word will be in debt to it, but he who fears the commandment will be rewarded. Charles Spurgeon once said that a Bible that is falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. But what we need to reckon with is this, that pre-Christian beliefs sometimes still have power in our lives. A key part of the discipleship process of following Christ is confronting and replacing any ungodly aspects of what you believe or how you live, whether it is magic, whether it's the occult, whether it's pornography, whether it's the idolatry of greed and gluttony and other things, you must reject evil and replace it with a pure commitment to Christ and scripture. Let all who name the name of Jesus abstain from wickedness. Let me just say, this is a very terrifying sermon for me to preach because I know how imperfectly I follow Jesus. And you know, this is a, a very terrifying message to receive because you know how imperfectly you follow Jesus. But you can't let it lead you to, I'm gonna just try harder. You've gotta let it drive you to Jesus. I gotta ask you the questions I've been asking myself all week. Is there anything you need to give up in your life? that is not of God, that is, that is opposed to the gospel? Have you allowed God to clean out your life? Has there been any time lapse on your obedience to the gospel? If you are in Christ, you're to dwell in the word of God, right? And let the word of God dwell richly in you. And then you do what it says and only in Christ's strength. Resolve to be realigned with Christ in scripture. Just know if you confess your sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. There's our hope in Christ. And it's because of Jesus and his finished work on the cross because he shed his blood in our place. That's what it's based upon, people. That's it right there. It's not you trying harder. It's not you trying to think positively. It's about trusting in Jesus. As we bring this to a close, let me just reiterate this, these events that happened in Ephesus, they really happened. 
And they demonstrate the power of Jesus and the word of God. That his word is mightier than any other. And, and again, five to eight years later, Paul is writing to the Ephesians. And here's what he tells them of Jesus. Ephesians 1.21. That God exalted him far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given. No spirit, no demon, no God, no goddess, no other supernatural entity that you might be tempted to worship can come close to rivaling the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the living word, the word made flesh, the all-powerful one, and God's powerful truth defeats Satan's lies. And by the way, Grace Church, I, I love that you love the word of God. I, I really do. And I know that's what's behind it, is a deep love for God. He has revealed himself in his word. When the word speaks, God speaks. You believe it with all your hearts. You cling to it. In this world we live in that is swarming with vicious and de deceptive lies, God's word is our only objective standard. We've got to cling to it. This is the effect of unleashing the word. The, the gospel divides. The gospel unites Christians. It exposes sin and it purifies hearts. And these are all good things that God does because his word is more powerful than anything because he is more powerful than anything. His word is invincible. So fill yourself full of the powerful word of God. Amen? Lord, thank you that you have given us your word. We, we don't deserve to be saved by Christ. We don't deserve to have the word of God, but we thank you that you have given it and we need it desperately. Lord, use, use your word in our lives for, for the purposes that you have ordained. And we pray in Christ's name, amen.